welcome to Genre Exposure, a film podcast. Join us as we explore the wide world of cinema, broaden our horizons one movie at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Dustin, and, uh, you know, well, it's actually just me this time, which is a little weird. Uh, if you're a longtime devotee of the show and you've listened in a lot, I said I never wanted to do a podcast where it was just me solo. Uh, I like, of course, you know, to bounce off someone else, to have that exchange of ideas, um, especially to get different perspectives when, uh, you know, me and someone else don't really sync up the same way on a film. It's cool to see. It's cool to see what someone else sees in a film compared to kind of my perspective. That's that's part of the fun of doing a podcast to me. Uh, that's part of what I've enjoyed about doing this show all this time. So what is this episode, you're wondering? Well, the last two years we have had a sort of on October 31st Halloween special bonus extra episode thingy. And um, if you have been tracking along with the show regularly this year, you know that we have struggled a lot. Uh, we kind of keep our private life mostly out of key unless it's relevant for a film or the discussion we're having. Um, but in the shake of things and trying to do all these extra episodes for October, like we always like to do, there was just not enough time to squeeze in one more little recording. Uh, mostly that is my fault. I'm about to head off on a vacation for a little bit. Uh, get out of the old um, Kentucky weather, see some sights around the around the states and, you know, visit somewhere else for a little bit. Recharge, come back uh, re-energized and excited about everything. So... I have happened to carve out just a little bit of time before I take off, and I thought in the spirit of keeping up traditions and to not let this ever, you know, kind of fall off the chain we've been keeping going all this time, I'll record just a little short thing to maybe kind of fill that spot still. So um, hopefully Jason and Michael, you will be channeling to me your energy to get through this and do it successfully. We're going to keep it super simple. All I'm really going to do is talk about kind of what I've been watching a little bit this month. I've been doing the um, the Horror Gives Back challenge that uh, Unsung Horrors always puts on. I'll definitely put that in the show notes on this episode if you're unfamiliar with it. It's a great, you know, month-long October film challenge where you just watch a horror movie a day. Um, they curate a very excellent sort of prompting where every day you've got like a prompt, a genre or a topic or an actor or something to go off of which is great to follow. I usually don't just because uh, I've mentioned it many times on the show, but my job, it's kind of hard sometimes with my schedule. So I'm often kind of scrambling just to get in whatever I can get in, or I might have to skip a day. And then on the weekends, I watch some extras to make it up. Um, it's very chaotic. So I usually only just get into whatever I can happen to get at in that moment. So um, definitely go check that out. Look it over. Um, if you're listening to this today, of course, it's the end of October. You've kind of missed the boat. Look for it next year. Um, or, you know, hey, they're going for a good cause. I think it's the um, Best Friends Animal Shelter. Because effectively, anyone that's doing this, you pledge a certain amount per film that you watch. And at the end of the month, everybody donates to this charity. Uh, it's a great way to take our love of film and cinema and just put it toward a good cause. And this, our most holiest of months for horror. So if you've looked at the title for this episode, you're going to see that it's called Dustin's Halloween J horror journal. Now that is because I went on a bender where I watched one or two J horror films. And then it just kind of, I hadn't watched any in a while and I don't know why I just in the scheme of things, I hadn't really circled back to any or had something new on my plate. And it just started this spree of like, man, I got to watch more. I got to watch more. And so that colored a lot of my, 2023 Halloween watches is just getting into a lot of some J-horror I've never seen and then also revisiting some classics that I love and just uh, wanted to experience. So I think first, before we get into kind of the main ones I really want to talk about, I just want to highlight a few super quick just to, you know, get it out there. Um, really close at the, um, the very first thing I watched for the month uh, on October 1st, I checked out No One Will Save You. Now, this is a new film. It just came out, 2023, directed by Brian Duffield. It's um, actually like an alien invasion abduction kind of film. And uh, it dropped on, I want to say, Hulu. So it's pretty easy to get at. Very simple premise. Uh, it's a young woman who's kind of alienated from her community, and she finds herself in a face-off against a host of extraterrestrial beings. And they kind of are a th impending threat for the future, but also forces her to confront some of her past. Um, very clever film, I thought. It um, 
it, there's not a lot of dialogue in it. And you don't even really notice it till you're maybe, I would say about halfway into the film. I kind of really registered with me that like, Oh wow, no one's really talking in this film, but it's so atmospheric and so engaging. It just really, really pulls you in. Um, and it is a very classical kind of like alien horror film where it's like, you know, a rural kind of farmhousey location that's isolated from everywhere else. You got a character that's a loner. She's got some sort of a, a controversial reputation in the town. So she doesn't have a lot of people that she can rely on or depend on. And then, yeah, you know, the weirdness starts and aliens start showing up. And I really like the design of the aliens. It was it kind of pulled on some of like the perceptions that you've had. If you've ever listened to like actual people's accounts of like when they claim they've encountered aliens. Um, so I felt like it was nicely rooted in that. I guess I would say subculture of like UFOs and alien abductions and all that stuff. Um, they let the lead be very resourceful, which was cool. Uh, she actually puts up a good, pretty good fight back them against the aliens, even though they've got all this technology behind them. Uh, it was, I just thought it was really clever and really smart especially for maybe I would say this is a genre that's a little played out by this point. So it's always cool to see something fresh in that respect. Um, just some shout outs or some classics. I revisited tales from the hood. I think that's always a classic. Um, I know Jason and I kind of go a little back and forth on the nineties and its relevance, but I think even he would agree with me that tales from the hood is definitely one of the good ones from that time. Um, Still hard-hitting, still just as socially conscious and relevant even today, unfortunately. Um, which maybe says a lot about how things have been, but, you know, is what it is. Um, also, speaking of the 90s, I revisited the 90s remake of Night of the Living Dead. I don't go back to this one as often. I don't know why. I think uh, I think Tom Savini did a great job with it. It managed to kind of kind of do its own thing while still being a remake of Night of the Living Dead. Um and that's maybe the right play because I think, you know, the original is just such such an iconic classic. You can't like, you can't just redo it and expect not to change anything or just somehow do it the same but better. So, so yeah, it, I mean, it's fun. I, I, I do it. I did enjoy it this time going back to it. It had been long enough. It kind of had faded from my memories. So um, let's see what else. So I mentioned in one of the episodes this month that I got to see Pet Cemetery at the drive-in. So that kind of left me with a little bit of a Stephen King bug. And um, AMC, they have their yearly like horror fest marathon that they do. And I happened to catch a Stephen King day on there. And so I watched back to back um, 1983's The Dead Zone and then 2007's 1408. Both super fun. I think The Dead Zone is like maybe, I'm going to say a little underrated maybe uh i don't see it come up a lot in discussions of stephen king film adaptations um certainly it's a weird swing with cronenberg right because it moves a bit away from like the body horror and kind of maybe like the science gone wrong angles that he takes um but it's so it's so it's still got that bleak like clinical tone that cronenberg is known for and i think it's so gripping and so relevant and like the love story between the leads is like so tragic and, you know, Christopher Walken plays it so well. And it really, you know, it, it's one of those things. I love films that ask a big question. And this is one of those where you can watch it and be like, well, you know, what would I do in this situation? It's kind of, it kind of harkens to that idea of that, like that classic, like theory concept sort of thing where it's like, if you could go back in time and kill Hitler before anything like developed with him, would you do it or not? And it gets into like the morals of that and the compulsions of that. And, um, yeah, just a really great film, especially in the the range of Stephen King stuff. 1408, a little weaker. I don't think it's quite as bad as some may say. I, I guess it's got mostly middling reviews, I would see, online. But uh, I've always liked it. I like John Cusack as the lead. I think he gives a good performance. Um, you know, for that time, 2007, I think it's a pretty passable horror film. But that's just me. Um... Yeah, I think that's the only, like, ancillary stuff I want to highlight that I didn't really get a chance to... Oh, there is one more. <laughs> I have to get a little full moon in every October, so... This was, like, a to-be-salvage one night where I needed something really short. I noticed this clocked in at uh, about an hour and ten minutes, so it seemed like a good fit. Hadn't seen it since, oof, way, way back. 
probably when I was in high school maybe, but uh, I circled back around to 1999 for David Dakota's Witch House. Um, the premise kind of gives you some predigree. It's mentioning Dunwich, so you're thinking like, oh, we're in for some Lovecraftian stuff, but that's really... <laughs> It's really not the case, but it's definitely one of the more one of those more like fuck it, I just want to have fun kind of movies. Um, it's basically a group of uh, you know twenty somethings. Um, they all get together in this old dilapidated house to have a strange party, and the host is kind of this uh, weird member of the friend group named Elizabeth. That's a little more like witchy, gothy. You know, she's like the outsider one. And so, of course, they're kind of all our, all the friends are like in on this because they're like, oh, well, she's going to know it. I have to throw a good Halloween party. And if as I'm describing this, you think this kind of just sounds like Night of the Demons, you would pretty much be correct, except instead of summoning demons and possessing people, um, they summon an ancient witch named Lilith, who was burned at the stake and now wants revenge. Um, and as you might imagine from that runtime, it basically has none of sort of the gravitas or depth of Night of the Demons. Uh, the characters are very tropey, very generic. Um, but it's got that weird, like, awkward, charming full moon flare that's hard to kind of turn away from. So it's, it's not very great, but it's one of those things, like, I just put it on. It's like, the, it's like that warm blanket, you know, you just sit down, throw it over yourself, and just, ah, relax. Full moon. Um, if you're not a full moon aficionado, I don't know that I would go for this one. Um, maybe if you kick back a few beers or something and you're, you're good and drunk and ready just to watch anything, not a bad pick, but do what thou wilt. So let's talk about a few J horror films. I've got a classic that I want to talk about and then a few new ones. Um, so the first one I want to talk about is from 1977 curse of the dog. God, Directed by Shunya Ito. Um, you might recognize that name. Uh, Shunya Ito directed some of the female prisoner Scorpion films, among other things. So, uh, good pedigree there. I love all those films. Um, and if you are a collector like me, you're going to know that this recently just got a very fancy release from Mondo Macabro. The past little bit, they've kind of been licensing some of the... Uh, the Toei-related horror films from, like, the 70s and the 80s, which I think is fucking amazing. I hope they keep doing that. Uh, I know they released this, and I think uh, it was uh, The Inferno at the same time, and they both sold out really super quick. So that's a good sign. I, ho I hope they'll keep continuing and doing more with that. But, um, yeah, man, like, so this movie, like, it's fucking bonkers, first first of all. If you, if you just love it, just a crazy off-the-rails film, this is that caliber of what you're wanting. Um, it's somewhat considered kind of like an Exorcist riff because, of, you know, of course, we were in the 70s, 73, The Exorcist came out, spawned many, many films. This sort of tried to imitate and pull on a lot of its ideas and kind of cash in on that the craze around it. Um, of course, our, our favorite and beloved Lucio Fulci made his own uh, Manhattan Baby, which is uh, interesting but questionable. So, Curse of the Dog God, you've got this rural village, and they've got this legend about a curse uh, about a dog god of the area, and this mining corporation comes in, and they're just looking you know, to mine for minerals or gold, silver, or whatever they can find. And kind of in the course of that, um, the big focus is they find like a deposit of uranium. So there's all this interest in like mining all of that out. And as they try to kind of set up shop there, they accidentally uh, destroy a small little wayward country shrine. And then also accidentally run over one of the village kids dogs. So that kind of sets up this ominous background to everything. And then our, our central lead, he is one of the mining employee companies and he's set to marry a daughter of one of the prominent families in the village. And so sort of amid all of this, this uh, this dog god, it's like vengeance starts to come for the people who have taken action against the town to try to like exploit it and do wrong. So um, the kind of love interest of the lead, she gets possessed by this spirit. And it goes through a lot of like the cycle of like the exorcist, right? Where they're trying to find like a, a, a scientific explanation for it. And uh, 
eventually in the end their only recourse is to kind of return back to the village and go through this kind of exorcism to save her uh which of course you know it's it's a j-horror film so it's never going to go right and then people start dying and things get crazy and there's all kinds of secrets and hidden family stuff going on and it just gets really interesting and really odd and it's one of those things like when you think you've got it figured out, you get to the final act and you just get this huge info dump of like weirdness you had no way to know about. And then just things get crazier and crazier right up to the very final moment. Um, I think it's one of those ones where if you're just a general fan of genre cinema, uh, if you already like horror too, then it's just like, it's such a delight because it's so many things kind of fused together in this weird uh, connection. And I guess to make this maybe somewhat more worthwhile than just me talking about uh, films I've watched, I thought I would share a little like uh, info, maybe to you can walk away and say like, hey, maybe I learned something today on this this Halloween day. So the central thing, this dog god that they're talking about in this film, it relates to this um, like mythology mythology thing, this uh, this type of like you know, spirit, creature, entity type thing in Japanese mythology called uh, Inugami, which literally that translates as dog god. You might translate it as like dog spirit. Um, but it's a spiritual possession from a like spiritual force made from a dog. Um, it seems like legend of this came rooted out of um, Shimane prefecture in Japan. Uh, there's several other different theories. Um, sometimes people connect it up with like the legend of Kitsune, like the fox spirits, which are very, if you've done too much Japanese cinema at all, you've probably encountered that idea as well. Um, I first learned about this, I think, from a manga, some hor random horror manga I was reading. And I think uh, what was crazy about it to me is like some of the t variants on the legend. So... I'll just give you a little general backstory on this. So, uh, the phenomenon of Inugami spiritual possession was a kojutsu, and that means sort of like a ritual that can be done that involves the spirit of certain animals. Uh, it was an act that was banned back in the Heian period and was thought to have spread throughout the population, and it was known to involve cutting off the head of a starving dog and then burying the dog at a crossroads to inflame its grudges as people pass over its head, so that spirit would turn into a curse that could then, could then be used and directed at someone. Um, there's all kinds of different variants, and I know that's like super fucking dark, right? Like, that's crazy. Um, great for a horror premise, though, in any kind of story. So, um, the legend I know, which I guess probably came from this manga, it was like you take the dog and you bury it in the ground, and you leave just its neck up, exposed. And then you set out food in front of it, but far enough back it can't get to it. So it has to like sit there and struggle and starve for days and days and days. Until it is like nearly dead. And then you decapitate it. And that's kind of sort of the legend they pull from to use in this film. <laughs> and there's this crazy act like near the end where the dude like does this ritual. And then you've just got this like really cheesy prop dog head, and it's just fucking flying around like Mystics and Bali style, just going at people. Uh, it's completely insane, but it was super fun as far as a film. A little tragic of this is like a legend, but um, you know, is what it is. There's there's a lot of legends that have uh, you know kind of darker premises to them. So, um. I'll definitely throw maybe a link to like the Wikipedia page about this in the show notes if you want to read more and read like different interpretations of it and ideas and also see some of the other places in popular culture where it's popped up. If there's been if you've uh, much of an anime watcher, you've probably came across it at some point. Um, even like bigger series like Inuyasha, they featured in Inugami at times as some kind of like element to the story. Um, so that's super fun. I assume, like, most of the Mondo Macabre releases, they go back and give it a uh, a standard edition. So, hopefully that will come out and more people can get at it. I don't know if it's on... I don't think it's on streaming anywhere, but maybe in a little bit it'll get put somewhere so more eyes can get on this. But um, if you like your 70s horror, you like your Japanese horror, this is one to go seek out and look for. So, the other three I want to talk about... 
is actually a trilogy. I had seen some of these before, but I'd never seen the final film, and it's now accessible on streaming. So I, I thought I would just talk about all three, just kind of to wrap up this short little thing, and then there we go. So um, talking about some films from Takashi Shibizu, a favorite of us here at the show. Of course, you're going to know him for The Grudge, probably before anything else. Um, recently, in the last few years, he did this whole thing called the Cursed Village Trilogy, and that was a series of three films, and each one kind of focused on like a really famous urban legend or some kind of ghost story that's very popular and very well known. And Shimizu kind of made his own like big budget film adaptation of the story. So, all three of these, I believe, they initially were licensed by Screenbox, and that was where you could check them out in any kind of official capacity. But now these are also on Tubi. So, you know, we love Tubi. We champion Tubi here at the show. So, very easy to get at if you want to check it out yourself. Uh, and I highly recommend it. Um, there's gonna, probably going to be more mixed for a lot of people. If you're really steeped in J-horror, they're like, you, you just need to see it. Um, but I do have criticism. So, your mileage is going to vary on these. So, the first one is 2019 and it's called Howling Village. And this is based on the story of Inunaki Village, which is a very popular urban legend that came out in the 1990s. So uh, I'll talk about the film first and then we'll kind of talk about the urban legend. That's that's how we'll walk through these, I think. But um, the film is like very, very straightforward at first. It's very typical J-horror fare. Uh, we get this like little found footage opening segment that's super fun where it's a guy and a girl and they're kind of trying to film like a they're kind of trying to film like a ghost spot video. Um, they're at this tunnel and which if you know anything about like Japanese horror, kind of like a tunnel that you drive through or anything like that is all often very like taken as like a haunted spot in many cases. But uh, yeah, there's there to film. They found I think they found like this interesting spot that's haunted and they're clearly like YouTubers of some sort or something, but uh, they're wandering around a bit, and they find this village kind of out in the woods in the middle of nowhere where it shouldn't exist, and um, they're exploring, and they kind of get separated, this duo, and then one of them gets attacked by other people that appear to be villagers, and there's a little question of like, are they real? Are they ghosts? What's going on? And so kind of in a terror, they run out and flee and chase away from the place. But when they make it back, something's wrong. The um, Of the duo, the girl, she's really disturbed and starts acting very weird, very dejected, very uh, doesn't talk a lot, just kind of weird, troubled, bothered. And so they go back to his family home where he's got a younger brother who's just like really charming the actor that plays him. He's, he was a great uh, child actor. I thought um, he's super into this legend of Inunaki village. So he's like watching YouTube videos and like doing all the research he can. And he's super interested in the fact that they've maybe found it potentially. And he even has this like diorama set in his room where he's like, he'll listen to part of the legend and then like map out like, Oh, this will probably be here. Um, in the film, part of the legend they do is that there's like this uh, telephone booth that's red. And if you're there at a certain time, you'll get a phone call. And the phone call will like invite you to come to the village. So yeah, he's kind of making this like really crazy, really elaborate for a kid diorama of like mapping out the legend and where it might be. Um, and our lead character, she is um, kind of a psychologist that's working at this hospital and doing a lot of work with like troubled kids and stuff. And so she kind of gets drawn into all of this whenever the guy and girl from the start, the guy is her brother. So it's like this family of, you know, three siblings, her, the older sister, a middle brother and a younger brother. And the dude, the, the middle brother, his girlfriend ends up killing herself. She like dies off this tower. Uh, very shocking moment. And in the wake of like dealing with the sadness of all of that, everyone kind of starts looking into this idea of, as, as they say, Inunaki, but in English they translated that to Howling Village. And as they start looking into it, they find out that um, perhaps 
it's a little more, they have some like family history, some family ties back to there. And I don't want to walk through the whole plot. That's something I would definitely want Jason here for. <laughs> but um, just to say, it's a, it's a really fun premise. It's a really cool premise. It gets a little uh, off the rails kind of toward the end. And that's maybe a criticism I have of all three of these. Um, as they work toward the end, they try to have this like gotcha twist ending. And they never really seem to work quite right. So I don't want to spoil that for you, but um, there's another fun little like tidbit side story where um, the lead, she's got a child she's working with at the start of the film. I believe his name is Ryotaro. And she, she um, the lead, she's like very psychically sensitive, so she can kind of see spirits and sense them and stuff. And she realizes that this kid... Uh, they're bringing him there because he's kind of like weird antisocial and the parents are worried because he was adopted. And we find out that like his parents died and the spirit of his actual mom is kind of like haunting him, but not really in a like malevolent sense as much as she is just kind of trying to like watch over him. And so uh, across the film, we start to see her psychic abilities kind of grow and develop. And amid trying to solve the mystery of this village, she's also trying to help the kid because he becomes a target uh, with these malevolent spirits as they realize that he is like kind of psychically sensitive as well. Um, it doesn't really go too far with that, but it is an interesting thing where then they give him like little cameos in the other two films. Like he's sort of the through line uh, that connects these. So the actual legend, it's supposed to be about a village that's in Fukuoka prefecture. And the, the premise is that, um, it's kind of supposed to be this village that was like, you know, out of time, out of place. And the residents like really didn't want to modernize. And they actually even refused to agree with like the Japanese constitution. And they say that like some, some kind of accident happened. Everyone died, all kinds of things like that. And they say that sometimes you can find it or find a way to get transported there. Um, it was a really popular urban legend. And I know that as you in, started in the nineties and then as you go, um, when it gets into like, you know, online times and we've got like message boards and things like that, it became a really popular, I guess you would describe it as a creepypasta that just got passed around and retold and added to and changed and evolved. So uh, let me account to you kind of the basics of this legend. So uh, Idunaki village is a small and easy to miss town in a forest located in Fukuoka prefecture to the east of the Inunaki mountain next to the m most upstream tributary of Inunakigawa and the western edge of Wakamiya. The residents of this village refuse to accept the constitution of Japan. Near the entrance to the village, there's a handwritten sign reading, The Japanese constitution is not in effect past here. In order to find the village, one must take a small side road past old Inunaki tunnel. Um, in kind of one of the original stories where they describe this place, they said it was happening like in the early 1970s and it's basically about this young couple and they're on their way traveling and their car unexpectedly breaks down like you do in any good horror story so they leave their car and they go headed out into the forest and they're just seeking anyone for help that can kind of you know get someone out there to assist them and, and eventually they stumble across that sign and kind of wander further and they eventually find this abandoned village then they get jumped and approached by this crazy old man who, you know, claims that they've found Inunaki village and then murders them with a sickle. Uh, there's another story that talks about a telephone booth near the bridge that gets a call coming out from Inunaki village every night. And if you're the person that answers that call, you become cursed and get bound to be brought to the village, whether of your own notion or by accident and, uh, eventually, the victim of the curse will lose control of their body and eventually die. And there's plenty of other variations, but those are kind of the most popular, the most common. Um, and what you'll notice in the film, once you kind of know that legend, they really kind of pull every piece. They've got the tunnel, they've got the, the phone booth. Um, and Shimizu kind of does some interesting stuff to, like, flesh out that, like, why, why are they, like, not a part of Japan? And it... They kind of build this backstory about like uh, a business company moving in. It's actually in a way kind of similar to Curse of the Dog God where uh, big business is sort of exploiting these rural people and everything goes wrong. So 
very interesting. There is actually a real Inunaki village. Uh, basically unrelated to this sort of urban legend. Um, in historical records during the Edo period, there was an actual village with this name. Um, its official name was Inunaki Dani Village. And um, it was established in 1961. Um, there's some info about them. They apparently produced a lot of ceramic products and did some steel manufacturing. There was a coal mine established there. A uh, small castle was built there. And then uh, eventually in 1889, they introduced this sort of premise called the town and village system that sort of like reestablished the lines of like cities and regions in Japan. And so this Inunaki Dani was integrated into the nearby Yoshikawa village, which then later merged with other areas over the intervening years. And then it all became the city of Miyawaka. Um, the actual site of Inunaki Dani was submerged in 1986 due to the construction of a dam. And then the residents were relocated into other areas in the area. So kind of like, how did this start? Uh, basically that tunnel that was like in the area. Um, that's always been considered to be haunted. There's stories of murder cases happening in and around the tunnel. Um, the original tunnel was built in 1949, and then they later constructed a nearby second one that was a bit more improved in 1975. And so because of that, the old tunnel became unused and kind of closed off. Uh, and the story goes that on December 6, 1988, five young men abducted and tortured a factory worker whose car they were planning to steal, <laughs> burning him to death with gasoline inside the old tunnel. Uh, the perpetrators were arrested and sentenced to life imprisonment. And then they sort of like bricked up, walled up the old tunnel so people couldn't go in there. Um, officially, the first mention of this story online apparently dates to 1999. And uh, it was something to do with Nippon TV received a letter from an anonymous person which described the legend of some murders that happened. And that prompted them to... Um, kind of go out there and like film a little show about it. And that popularized the idea even further. Um, pretty interesting background, I think. Um, there's some other media that's been inspired by it. There's um, an anime called The Lost Village, I believe from 2016. That's sort of inspired by it. And then um, if you are sort of an anime horror fan, you're probably familiar with my favorite mangaka, Junji Ito great artist does some great short horror fiction and he has his own kind of interpretation of the legend called the story of the mysterious tunnel so that was 2019 and then he followed this up in 2021 with suicide forest village so first things first is this seems like it's going to be much more prestigious because suicide forest you probably are at least familiar with that idea um, Okigahara, this really famous region that's known for being a popular suicide spot. Um, but this film, I would say, to me, it's the weakest of the three. Mostly because it's a little split in its focus. Uh, it seems like it's going to be about, right, the suicide forest. And I'm, I'm sure it's better than that American film that tried to swing in that direction, because that was... Yeah. Uh, less said about that. I don't even remember the title right now. Maybe just The Forest or something like that, but... Uh, yeah, so what this does, though, is it is it is about that, but it's also kind of about this other, again, like an urban legend ghost story sort of thing that's been more popular in recent years. And that is the story of the Katori Bako. So the Katori Bako is supposed to be this, like, really disturbing, like, urban legend story. And it's about this idea that... Um, it was like this puzzle box that was made for children. Um, but they say that it's like this mysterious thing that when you find it, it's got this intricate design. And it's like this uh, child capturing box. So it like draws children in and gets them to want to like play with it. And um, apparently anyone that encounters it will get sick, cough up blood, fall to the dirt and spasm around and ultimately die if you've just even contacted it at all. 
Um, and there really never seems to be a way to get rid of it or destroy it. And the only thing to do is to really kind of like seal it up and hide it away somewhere where its curse can like eventually sort of feign and wear off and just stop impacting everything. Um, they say that if you could ever look inside it, you find the remains of a person. Um, and so, yes, yeah, it's this big, badass Japanese cursed box. Um, there's been other films that have kind of swung uh, an attempt at adapting this. I think there's even one just called Katori Bako. So this film, Suicide Forest Village, uh, again, you've got a family that's kind of the center of it all. And in this case, we've got uh, two sisters. And the one sister's a little quiet, a little dejected, a little uh, kind of in her own world. And she's a part of this online group that likes to research the paranormal and they kind of, you know, hook up on like Zoom and just chit chat and talk ghost stories, urban legends, all that kind of fun stuff. So kind of a friend in their little circle. Uh, he's getting married and they've bought this house in Aokigahara and they're planning to move there and kind of start their life. And there's a bit of drama because our other lead, she kind of had the feelings for this dude for a while. And there's some sort of like very faint love triangle stuff going on, but it's not really the focus. So. Don't feel like it's going to get bogged down in that. Um, we've also got an appearance by my favorite, Jun Kunimura, in here. He plays this uh, old dude that kind of lives in and around the forest region and um, seems to be getting up to a lot of antics where he finds missing people and like helps them get out. Um, and so when they're helping this couple settle into their new home, in the foundation beneath the house, they find this Katori Bako. And it does a great introduction to it. Um, if you have no idea what it what it kind of does or the legend or anything, because they find it and their um, their rep from the real estate agency is there, and they ask him, they're like, "Hey, we found this weird box under the house. What do you think this is? Like, what's the story with what's with, what's the deal with it?" And he's like, "Oh, this. I don't know. It's probably just junk. I'll I'll take care of it for you." And so he goes walking to just go put it in his car, which is parked like across the street. And the second he walks into the street, he just gets plowed into by a semi-truck. Kills him, and conveniently the box goes flying and lands safe on the side of the road. So a lot of the film is sort of devoted to trying to figure out the, the legend, the story behind this, and, and sort it out as, yeah, everybody that comes into contact with it just, you know, fucking dies and gets offed in some way. It's like, uh, it's like Final Destination all wrapped up in a little box that just targets whoever has it. Um, the acting's good here because of the box and the kind of the premise that like even encountering it, the like universe conspires to kill you. That leads them to really cool, like really bizarre deaths that happen that shouldn't shouldn't normally happen but do. And, that, and that's again where I get a little bit of that final destination vibe in there. But um, yeah, it's got like good atmosphere, good energy to it. There's a whole interlude where uh, our secondary protagonist she goes to meet up with her friends in person for the first time and explore Aokigahara. And that's got some really good imagery. Um, they do some cool thing with these like ghosts that are like merged into trees and these weird like plant ghost monster things, which are really cool. But uh, I feel like this one, like it drags a lot in the middle and it gets pretty slow. Uh, I believe if Jason were here, he would let us know that it's uneven perhaps. And, uh, yeah, it just, I don't know, something about the ending, too. It's one of those ones where it's really weird and nothing ever quite adds up the right way about it. But, you know, if you if you enjoy your J-horror, I think it's still worth a look. But um, it, was, it was a little dipped down for me compared to the first one. Um, so let's see. Here's some just a little info I pulled from a site that kind of had a write-up about the Katori Bako just to give you some info. So, although a puzzle box for children, the Katori Bako has urban legends dating back throughout history. Uh, one village learned from their mistake of opening such a box. Long, long ago, there was a small village which lived tucked away in the mountains of Japan. One day, the head of the village discovered a mysterious box with a beautiful, intricate design. Upon parading the box around the village, women and children were drawn to the object, begging the head of the village to open it and show what was inside. However, they found the puzzle was too difficult. Which that's one thing I want to highlight. Some versions of the story talk about how you have to like solve 
Sort of like a sliding tile puzzle that's on the box to open it. <laughs> Big Hellraiser vibes there. That would be... You know, there's a lot of Hellraiser comics. I don't know if one has ever tried to, like, connect the dots. I remember reading some where, like, they imagine different configurations of, like, what the Le Marchand box can be. Um, so that's my, like, free idea to the world, I guess, is if no one's ever like, linked that with the Katori Bako, that could be a cool idea. Give me, give me my J-Horror Cenobites. I'd like to see that. Um, but so suddenly, the women and children grew ill, coughing up blood and falling to the dirt as spasm after spasm racked their bodies. Within days, anyone who had ventured near the box had fallen sick with mysterious illness, and the women and children who were once so curious to open the box became the first to perish from the violence of the disease. In the hopes of cleansing whatever curse the box had brought, the head of the village locked it away in the village shrine, declaring it to never be touched again. Years later, when the horror of the Katori Bako had faded to a disbelieved tale, a group of people found the box within the shrine. After working at the puzzle, the box sprang open to reveal the contents. Inside were the remains of a human corpse, the head somehow shrunken yet preserved with its eyes wide open. Immediately, the people who discovered it fell to their knees, gagging on mouthfuls of blood as they choked and spasmed. Within hours, the population of the village was decimated as men, women, and children fell to a quick and violent death, their screams ringing out over the mountains. So yeah, um, I love this about J-horror and like Japanese ghost stories and legends. Like, their ghosts don't fuck around, man. Like, you, you get in their path and you're dead. You're done. There's no answer. There's no solution. You're just fucking done and you're on the countdown clock. Um, you know, it's you, in all the most popular J-horror, you get this, right? Like The Ring, you watch that tape, boom, seven days. I don't know how many of you actually keep up with like the newer Ringu films, but um, I believe these days they just go by Sadako. But uh, yeah, like in some of those, they've updated it. So once you watch the tape, it's like 24 hours. Like they don't play around. Same thing with The Grudge. You can't escape it. You step in that house, you're fucking done. I really love and appreciate about that, especially like, I guess kind of just the bleakness of it that like, you know, this is some bad shit and you even fuck around with it even once and that's it. So that brings us to our final film of this trilogy, 2022 Oxhead Village. Um, so for this one, I had not seen this one yet. Um, I hadn't had a chance to get around to it and. I suppose Screenbox Licensing Net was kind of its first debut over here. So this is my first chance to get at this one. And I was curious kind of what what I would think because I really liked Halloween Village a lot other than the ending. And then Suicide Forest Village I was a bit more mixed on. And it, ha it has a really disappointing ending speaking of that. But um, so yeah, I wondered if this one was going to kind of continue that downturn or if you know, maybe maybe they would throw out some surprises. So, in this one, we've got another kind of urban legend creature that they focus on. But uh, it, again, it opens with one of those like social media focused things where it's like some girls and they're filming a YouTube video about how they're going into this haunted building, it's supposed to be like the most haunted building in their area, their region, and they're investigating this urban legend of this elevator that's supposed to be a portal into another world. And they've got, um, like, there's two leads, and then they've got another girl, and they're making her wear this, like, Oxhead mask, which is related to, like, a local legend. That's hence the title, Oxhead Village. And they're going to, like, shove her in the elevator and kind of just make a funny video. However, when they do it, the elevator drops... And so, you know, frightened by this, they go running down to the first floor to check and see if she's okay. And when they check the elevator, she's vanished into thin air. And so this kind of resonates across social media. Obviously, a lot of people assume it's a prank. That's kind of, you know, what you would assume, right? It's been faked for just to be a show. Uh, and that brings us to our lead character, uh, Canon. And she takes a little bit of interest in it and kind of just like events conspire to get her to investigate it a little further. She's got a guy who's kind of interested in her. Um, wants to date. He's maybe a little little too needy. So she's sort of 
unsure where she sits with him, but uh, he watches this video, and for one second, you can see the girl take the ox head mask off, and her her visage is identical to Canon. So this other girl, Shion, they start to wonder, like, oh, could we be related? Is it just some sort of weird, like, coincidence or what's going on? Um, and our lead, she has some like weird gaps in her memory from when she was a child and she lives alone in Tokyo with her father. Uh, story is that her mother's dead, died in some kind of accident when she was younger. So they kind of pack up and decide to go investigate this and see what's up. Uh, and that leads them into this potential that, um, maybe her mother isn't dead. Maybe she actually has a twin sister And, and the story of this village that has this sort of like, really backwards custom where they considered twins cursed and they would have this ritual to sacrifice them to this uh, ox-headed deity. I don't want to say too much more about this one. I don't think it is the newest of the bunch. Um, And kind of letting it play out is the interesting part, like what's really going on here. Um, I think maybe conceptually this one's like the best of the three. Though if you ran them up against each other, I might pick Howling Village as my favorite. Um, but the legend this one t- touches on is like really, really cool. So it's it's the story of uh, Gozu, or you would translate that as Cowhead. And you may be familiar with this from some other Japanese horror f- films. Um, Mike has the film Gozu, which features this, and there's some others. Um, but so Gozu, it's also known as Oxhead, and it's an urban legend about a fictional story. Uh, that's right, a story. So supposedly, the story is so terrifying that if you read it or hear it, you get filled with so much fear that you kind of shut down and just tremble violently for days until you end up dying. Again, this is getting back to what I just said I love about J-Horror is like, they don't fuck around. So, uh, the, with how powerful this story was, the idea was you would break it up into fragments and kind of parse it out into the world and that way, if only a fragment is read, it won't be lethal. It'll still scare you and still bother you, but it won't kill you. And then that way, no one can ever assemble the full story, which would be terrible. Um, there was once a rumor that this is an unpublished piece written by a science fiction author named Sakio Komatsu. Um, but that's pretty much just an urban legend. There's no real truth or evidence has ever been found for it. Um... There's also a Ukrainian folktale about a cow-headed creature. Um, but that's about a woman who receives good fortune by offering food and shelter to a disembodied cow's head that visits her one night. I love uh, I love mythology and legends like this, man. It's so cool. Um, but yeah, so this gets into that. Um, there's even a segment where they talk about the story that is, is so scary it can kill you. And... Um, I'm not going to spoil too much more on this one, I don't think. But um, uh, the lead, uh, Canon, and then her potential twin, Shion. It's played by the same actress. Her name is um, Kogi. I guess that's sort of like an actress name. I think her her regular name is Mitsuki Kimura. She's sort of like a model, songwriter, this and that. She's not really been in much else, I noticed. She's been in some like shorts... Uh, I guess this is her only feature film appearance. She has a really good visage, gives a really good performance. I would love to see her in more things. And I also maybe had a little bit of a soft spot for this film because her grandpa is played by Akaji Maro. And he is famously one of the lead detectives in Suicide Club. Um, and several other Sono films he also appears in. And plenty of other cult uh, Japanese cinema. He's in um, Shinya Sukamoto's Gemini. Uh, he pops up, I think, in Toshiaki Toyota's Porno Star as well. Just one of those great, like, <laughs> very classic genre actors from Japan. Like, he's got such a notable visage to him, too, that if you've seen him in anything else, you'll immediately notice him when you see him. Oh, and then, of course, I've probably missed, missed the most obvious thing that he's appeared in, which is that he is um, Boss Ozawa in Kill Bill. That's probably where most people are going to know him from. And that just came back to me. So, um, so yeah, it's three films, each one about a cursed village, each one kind of pulling from 
a really popular Japanese urban legend, and it's just Takashi Shimizu kind of trying to give his his uh, spin on them. So they're super fun. They're they're great for like, I guess some people think J horror is kind of played out, but um, as a devotee, I'm never gonna say that. So if you're looking for maybe some more modern ones to check out, these are some good ones to watch. Um, I wouldn't say any of them are perfect. None of them are gonna top like The Ring or The Grudge or or any of those classics, but um, they're fun. They're enjoyable. They each kind of have a, a little something to them that's like compelling, but then also a little bit where you're like, mm, I don't know. Uh, Oxhead Village kind of suffers that same problem right at the very end. They kind of try to have a last minute, like, gotcha twist ending. And, you know, it's one of those things where, like, I don't even know if they're necessary. Like, it doesn't it doesn't add anything. It doesn't make it <laughs> more fun. You could really just cut that off, and the ending it had before then was fine. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. Um, I'm sure for, like, the popcorn crowd just going to a theater, maybe that's for the best. But who knows? So... Yeah, that's kind of been my little uh, J-Horror bender that I've done all month. So, look into some of those films, see what you think. If you've happened to see any of them, please write in and let me know what you think. We always love to hear what you've been enjoying, what you've been watching. Um, go check out Horror Gives Back. Show some love to Unsung Horrors. Uh, I really love that they're always putting that on every year. I look forward to it each time. You will see us back again here in a little bit, and we will be discussing Barbarian. Our next listener episode, keeping the horror vibe going a little stronger till uh, I am afraid I will have to swerve us for the end of the year into something else, but you know how it goes here. Horror is never far from our hearts. So on behalf of Jason, on behalf of Michael, and of course from me, I just want to wish you all a very happy Halloween. And whatever you're doing today, I hope you get to spend it embracing and enjoying the spirit of Halloween and this lovely season of the time when it's okay to embrace horror films in the mainstream and just go all out with it. Um, and as usual, you can hit us up on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. You can email us at genreexposure at gmail.com. It's Halloween night. Whip out your spirit board. Try to channel us. I'm open to it. Let's do it. I'm gonna haunt ya. But all that said, you have been listening to Genre Exposure. Happy Halloween. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening.